This is Ethan, and I'm here with Dave, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 89-inch. On this week's episode, we are joined by Pat Regan, a keyboardist, producer, engineer, and mixer who toured with Weird Al and recorded on three of his early albums. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. It's a podcast about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. And we're back with another Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al podcast episode. Dave, there was a lot of excitement that came out of last week's episode. I saw on our Facebook group a lot of people reminiscing about the Weird Al forum and there was a, a special argument about how it was pronounced. See, now I always thought it was pronounced Wowway because the initials of World of Weird Al Yankovic Forum is W-O-W-A-Y. That was always the shorthand and that was right. the accepted shorthand. But there was some, <laughs> you know... Some people who pronounced it Wowway and some people who pronounced it Wowway because you've only ever seen it written. You never heard it because right. this was, you know, an online forum. You know, people were typing, you know, back and forth to each other. So you'd read it in your mind however you read it. So I didn't realize that other people were pronouncing it Wowway. I've always just pronounced it Wowway. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've only ever heard it from you. So that's what I would have assumed. But one of the arguments I saw for Wowway was you separate world of and then way weird l so it's kind of gives more importance to w-a-y so I, who knows who cares <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny to watch arguments come out of episodes like that <laughs> i mean there is one way we can solve it we can ask bart van den acker the person who created the world of weird Yekovic for him how he pronounces it that would pretty much put this to a rest uh, I mean, would it necessarily? I mean, <laughs> we've talked about, you know, GIF versus JIF, you know, off the air quite a bit. And you cite it is JIF because that's what the creator said. But I feel it's GIF and, you know, it's just the more accepted term. So, it, you know, once it gets out into the universe, can it really be the creator's say anymore? Definitely a topic for a secret episode at some point. <laughs> Argue some pronunciations. <laughs> like, is it beautiful or is it beautiful? <laughs> well, if you want to get into the whole Wowway versus Wowway, GIF versus GIF, you can do that over on our Facebook group, you know, where we have riveting conversations like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, of course, group. 2000inch.com and we'd love to have you join us. Also on the group, Joe Jaffa shared an online post about someone watching Zootopia with the audio description on by accident and thinking it sounded like a narrated nature show. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as he posted that, I was like, alright, I need to check this out. So I went to Zootopia, it's on Disney Plus, and I turned on the audio description, and sure enough, it's like a, a British person, you know, talking about, you know, <laughs> the rabbit moved to the, you know, it, it really does sound like a nature show. It's, it's very funny. <laughs> I only watched a few minutes of it, but, you know, I think next time, if there is a next time I ever watch Zootopia, it'll be with the audio descriptions on. So, Ethan, here's a fun fact about Zootopia. Not only that when you put on the audio description track, it sounds like a nature show, but Al's gal 
Monique Donnelly, she actually sings on the score to that film. How awesome. Yes. Now, we just talked to Monique the other day for the podcast, and we're really excited to get that episode out there for you guys. So stay tuned, and you'll hear a lot more from Monique soon. Now, there's also a bunch of chatter about the cover of our theme song that we played by the great Summer Woods. Thank you so much for that bossa nova version of our theme song. Yeah, that was so awesome. I definitely heard a lot of positive reviews about that one for sure. In fact, episode 14-inch guest J.W. Halford, he texted me as soon as he heard the song and he said how great it was. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, leave it to J.W. to know what bossa nova is. <laughs> <laughs> So with the popularity of, of course, Summer Woods' awesome Bossa Nova theme song, we actually received another really incredible theme song for the show. Oh, really? I, uh, where did you hear that? Now, Frank sent it to us, you know, our intern. Didn't he copy you on the email? No. Frank hasn't sent me anything in, I don't know, a couple weeks now. No. <laughs> the other day, he just sent around the invite for his birthday celebration for his close, most personal friends. Wait, a, a birthday celebration? Oh, oh no, never, never mind. Forget I said that. Oh, this, uh, yeah, but this uh, theme song, it's, it's really incredible. And dare I say, better than the original version that two-time Grammy-nominated Jim Kimo West did? Wow, better than the original version by two-time Grammy-nominated Jim Kimo West. I gotta hear this. I'm so excited. It's a podcast about Weird Al. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Whoa, so great! Oh, I, I just can't get over it. <sighs> Dave? You heard it, right? Wasn't it great? Who sent that in? Uh, th so this awesome theme song, of course, it came from our good and our longtime friend, huge Weird Al fan, huge fan and supporter of the podcast, Mike Minnick. What the fudgesickle? After nearly two decades of friendship with Mike, I can't believe that one of my so-called friends created something so terrible and heinous. I, I mean, it's pretty funny, Dave. I, I'm just not sure I can be friends with him anymore. I mean, it was a joke. I'm, I'm sure it was. Oh, that was no joke. Not a joke? You think you know somebody, and then boom! Maybe he was upset that it took us about six months to play his Joe Franklin parody on the show. Uh, please, can we just move on from this? I, I'm, just, I'm just really upset right now. Well, wow, Dave. I, I would have never imagined you'd react this way, but... Here, how about we... Here we go. Let's check what's in the 347 Spatula Hotline. That will surely cheer you up, Dave. You love the 347 Spatula Hotline. The official hotline of Dave and Ethan's 2000 Weird Al podcast is sponsored by Angel Valenzuela and David Cash, two amazing Weird Al fans and podcast supporters. Hey, guys. Mike Minnick here. I was actually trying to reach uh, Ethan and Dave's 2000 Weird Al podcast. I don't know, maybe you could forward this along to them. Anyway, I just listened to the episode where you interviewed Alicia and talking about that picture of Al with the deer. I actually have some insight into that. Uh, when he was doing promotion for his final album, they were taking photos and they told him that he had to take a picture with a deer. And he said, I really don't want to. 
And they said, no, it's mandatory fawn. <laughs> oh, how's that? Certainly you must feel better now after hearing that great voicemail from Mike Minnick. Well, I mean, I do like a good pun, but I don't know. I'm still kind of bummed out. I mean, hearing Mike's voice on the 347 spatula hotline, that just reminded me all about his parody theme song again. Oh, well, I mean, we could play it again if you want. I, I mean, I wouldn't mind hearing it one more time or making it our official new theme song. No, please, just don't do that. Uh, all right, all right. Well, there is one surefire way to put a smile on your face, Dave. It's time! It's time for the Burrito Burrito ad! If that doesn't cheer you up, nothing will! This week's episode is brought to you in part by vegan Mexican restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double-wrapped-in-a-quesadilla Burrito Burrito. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito, your Burrito Burrito. Find them at burritosquared.com and at burritosquared on Instagram. And remember, not every burrito is a burrito burrito burrito, but every burrito 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 can be burrito burritoed. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel so much better right now. Oh, good. Well, this will make you feel even better because it's time for This Week in Weird Al-Related News. Late last week, Brian Posehn released New Music Sucks, his latest music video off of his Grandpa Metal album. Now, why do we care? I mean, we love Brian Posehn and he's a big Weird Al fan, but we care because both Pat Oswalt and Weird Al have cameos in his music video. If you decide to check out the video, we must warn you, the lyrics are not family-friendly, and there are a lot of spicy words in there. Ooh, spicy! Ethan, didn't you open up for Brian Posehn at a stand-up comedy show at the Palace Theater in Albany, New York? The same venue that Weird Al has performed at tons of times? Yeah! Okay, I thought so. In other news, this weekend, Sunday, January 17th, is the 2021 Southern California Slack Key Festival. The festival will feature our podcast theme song's very own two-time Grammy-nominated Slack Key virtuoso, Jim Kimo West. You know, that guy who did our official theme song and the one we will never, ever change, ever, for any reason whatsoever. We get it, Dave. We get it. <laughs> you can check out the Southern California Slack Keys Festival live. It'll be live streaming for free on Jim Kimo West Facebook artist page, which you can check out at facebook.com slash slack happy. And for more information about the other artists and how you can purchase an optional ticket to support the artists, just head over to calicoa.com slash slack key. That's K A L. A-K-O-A dot C-O-M slash slack key. Speaking of two-time Grammy Award-nominated Jim Kimo West, you know, the guy who wrote our incredible and permanent, never-changing, ever, ever, ever official Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al podcast theme song, we are thrilled to learn that the new Anita Lurch album that Jim worked on Love Is My Religion has won a Global Music Award. From all of us here at Dave and Ethan's 2000s Weird Al podcast, congratulations to Anita and Jim. Now, while we're on the subject of two-time Grammy Award-nominated Jim Kimo West, there is some Grammy news. It has been announced that the Grammy ceremony, which was scheduled for January 31st, is being moved to March 14th. Now, this means that it's only an extra month and a half of having to keep all your fingers and toes and eyes crossed in hopes that Jim will win. 
from all of us here at Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast. Best of luck to you, Jim, on March 14th. We're really hoping we can call you Grammy Award winning Jim Kimo West after that date. We are all aware that Weird Al's core band has been consistent since the early 1980s. As we dig deeper into his career, there are tons of other talented musicians that have contributed to the music we know and love. And it's always such a treat when we get to speak to one of them. Dave and I are very excited to welcome our next guest. He is someone who has not only toured with Al, he recorded on three Weird Al albums as the piano and synthesizer player in 3D, Dare to be Stupid, and Polka Party. And we are just so thrilled to have him joining us today. Keyboardist, producer, engineer, and mixer, Pat Regan. How's it going, Pat? Hey, how you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing great, actually. It's fun to be doing this with you guys. Yeah, wow. It's, it's so great to get to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show. You bet. Yeah. This is kind of an uh, unusual opportunity to reminisce about the old Weird Al days, but uh, I know he's still going strong, which is great. I'm glad to see he's still doing it, and funnier than ever. <laughs> you recorded quite a bit with Al in the 80s. Pretty much, yeah, and then toured with him as well. You know, we did a couple of tours, and which was uh, which was very interesting. We actually opened up, uh, or actually were uh, on a double bill with the Monkees, right. and did uh, <laughs> kind of an extensive tour with those guys, you know, and that was kind of fun. And uh, being in Van Halen's old tour bus. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was, those are great days. If you could, take us back to the beginning. How did you get started in music? Well, I uh, was, you know, I, I took piano lessons, like, from seven years old, basically. My folks kind of thought I had some talent. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed playing the piano, but I uh, I, I didn't like you know, the process of having to read music. We had a great piano teacher, me and my brother, basically. We uh, we had this guy who was a concert pianist and played at the Hollywood Bowl all the time. Wow. And very talented, and uh, but very strict as well. So, you know, he'd give me, a, you know, a, a lesson, to, like homework, basically, for the next week, come by to, to kind of see how we did. And my brother was great. You know, he was a very uh, avid reader of uh, music notation and I just wanted to take the easy way out so I just kind of learned it by ear you know I could <laughs> listen to my uh, tutor's performance and then try to replicate it and you know he'd like review it and say well that sounds pretty good but this this part doesn't exist <laughs> and try to show me that I was kind of fudging it up a little bit you know but I didn't really have the patience even though eventually I mean I, I you know I learned to to read pretty well and, and to orchestrate and so forth you know but in those days it was mostly by ear, and I just I had a really good ear. My brother was just the opposite, and he never really kind of, you know, he was good, but he just never really kind of got into music, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, on the other hand, got into the, the blues and, you know, progressive music, especially during the early uh, 70s, you know, with uh, Yes and ELP and that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff, Mahavishnu Orchestra oh, wow. and jazz, for that matter. So, uh, and then I kind of, um, you know, my parents really sort of... Uh, were very understanding, and they wanted to promote that. And uh, I actually I, I bought a, um, a ARP Odyssey synthesizer back, I think it was 1973 or something like that. And that kind of got me on the road to uh, electronic music. And I took uh, electronic music courses in uh, in college. They had an old Moog modular uh, 
three, you know, the one with the patch cords and the whole bit, but those things are very popular now, obviously. It's coming back around. And that really kind of taught me the fundamentals of, you know, music sculpting effectively. You have to create something from nothing, you know, you have to synthesize the sound. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, because I never really had any formal training in uh, recording technology, you know, even though I kind of learned a lot of it from behind the board in the control rooms when, we, when I was doing records all the time, because I was a session keyboardist for a long time. And uh, so I kind of picked up a lot of points when I was, I was working with Spencer Proffer over at Pasha Studios where I did Quiet Riot. And he was doing a lot of film scores and stuff like that. And I really got a chance to kind of learn the inside of what was going on in the control rooms because that's where I would set up. I wouldn't be out in the studio with the other players mostly. I'd be in the control room and just picked up a lot of, uh, you know, what was going on. And it all made sense because that's how I created sounds with synthesizers, you know? Right. So, you know, when you look at outboard gear in a control room, it's virtually the same thing as you, you have in a modular synthesizer. You're just plugging stuff into the board, you know? And uh, so, but I really got into, to, you know, synth playing in general, mainly because I get bored of like one dimensional instruments, <laughs> like, uh, you know, even guitar is very, uh, you know, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, dynamics to it and you can do a lot of stuff with guitar, but it is sort of, it is a one sound instrument other than the distortion and all that. Uh, piano in particular is, is just kind of, it sounds one-dimensional even though it depends on how you play it but with a synthesizer you could be like an entire orchestra you know string section or something you've never heard before and that fascinated me and that's what I got mostly into being an electronic keyboardist and had an incredibly ridiculously large rig back in the 70s that <laughs> you have to have like uh, <laughs> several synthesizers to pay to play it poly- polyphonically because Whoa. Each synthesizer would only pay one play one note at a time, you know. So you'd have to have several of them to, to oh, play yeah. a chord, you know. And wow. uh, so I, it was the yeah the old days, you know. When I picture a synthesizer, I picture like a Yamaha keyboard, and that's it. So you're telling me that these were a lot more advanced. <laughs> oh yeah, well I mean the fact is there were no, there's no such thing as presets in those days. You had to create a sound by just, you know, changing the oscillator frequencies oh, and the wow. filter and the envelope generators. Oh, you had wow. to sculpt the sound from scratch, you know, and then try to like do that on the fly in a live performance, you know. Wow. And uh it was challenging, but it was it was a great learning experience, you know. Um, because I know exactly, you know, if I'm thinking of a sound, I know exactly what knob to go to to create it, you know. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's so much easier. You know, you just have a preset, like you said, like a Yamaha board or whatever. Or when I was with Al, uh, I had uh, the the Jupiter 8 synth, which Al ended up buying one as well, which is, I wish to God I hung on to it, because that is like the premium of all synthesizers now. Oh, <laughs> they wow. go for like 15 grand, you know, it's, wow. they're hard to find, oh. you know. But that was one of the the first uh, polyphonic programmable type synths, other than the sequential Prophet uh, Prophet Five, and the CS80, all of which I did own in that period of time. But uh, it was, you know, that was the next phase. You know, everything started to go digital, and you end up uh, it was analog controlled or digitally controlled analog synths, and you were able to store memories, you know, of the sound, and you could switch on the fly in a live performance, which was made a huge difference for live you know and uh so al and i had uh, a couple of jupiter eights which was top of the line at that point in time and that's the that's what i used for the uh the 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 synth intro for eat it 
because, and that's technically why I even got Al's gig to begin with, is that um, uh, I got a call. I was in Cherokee Studios in Hollywood. We was working on a record. George Tutko is the engineer. He's passed away since, whatever. But he um, he knew Derringer pretty well. I mean, I had met Derringer before uh, before this, I think. I'm, I'm trying to piece it together as far as timeline here, but... In any case, Derringer was looking for uh, a way to create the sound from Michael Jackson's Beat It, right? Which is that big synth intro, which happens sure, to yeah. be a, a synclavier. In those days, the synclavier system was about 200 grand, and they were really <laughs> ridiculously expensive wow. to rent, even, you know? <laughs> so I said, well, yeah, I mean, I could do it. You know, we just have to rent one, you know, if we can find find one. Or maybe I could just kind of come up with something similar on the Jupiter 8. And he said, well, do you, you mind coming down to the studio and see if and just give it a shot? So I did. I went down and I created that sound that was close enough to uh, the Synclavier that that's what we ended up using. And I just found the whole operation really very entertaining when we were in the <laughs> studio because it, just one thing led to another and I ended up doing more songs and then... And then when we tracked that stuff, that was the fun part because uh, we did it all as a band in the uh, in the studio, you know, with Bermuda on drums and Jim. And, 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 and um, Al would come out and he would just, he, that would be the first time we'd ever even hear the lyrics is when we performed it, you know, okay. and tracked it. And I, and I was trying oh. to keep a, fa- a straight face as we're playing this stuff <laughs> that it basically was, you know, like King of Pain, you know, which is King of Suede, you know, and, and stuff that, yeah. you know, we're I'm just, you know, learning the tracks as the originals, you know. And then Al comes in and does these ridiculous lyrics, and it just, it was hilarious. I mean, it was it was gas to, to do. So I just kind of got hooked on the thing, and it was fun working with Derringer. He was, uh, he's, a, he's a great guy um, and talented as well. And... Uh, and and the rest of the band was good, you know. So it was just it, it was kind of like the ultimate uh, top forty gig, you know. You do these the hits, but you know with Al's slant on everything, right. you know, which was uh, <laughs> you know, the fun part. Right. So it, it was very entertaining, and that's why even going out with him live was uh, was a lot of fun as well, because that was almost kind of like a mini Alice Cooper show in a way, you know, with all the uh, projections <laughs> and the costumes and everything, you know. I want to talk a little bit more about the Weird Al Yankovic in 3D recording session. I mean, sure. you pretty much ended up on every song or almost every song, as far as you know, I think right? so, on yeah. Album. yeah. 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 I got a gold album sitting in the living room. Yeah. The, <laughs> wow. Yeah, cause it's, yeah, and a Grammy, for that matter. I got a Grammy certificate because that won Best Album, wow. Comedy Album of the Year in 1984. <laughs> wow. And what's funny, it's like, what, that's the best way to win a, a Grammy is probably being on the best comedy album because you don't have that much competition with Weird Al <laughs> at that point. Who the hell right. else is going to win right. a Grammy? You know? So, uh, yeah, so that was that, that album won a Grammy. That was great, uh, which is kind of why, you know, in the uh, Complete Al, I think that's how they came up with that concept with, you know, going to Michael, Michael Jackson's home, you know, uh, with all right. the Grammys behind him, <laughs> which was uh, very funny. But uh, yeah, no, I ended up pretty much on, on the entire record, you know, and that was, you know, most of, that was how he did, you know, his records. I guess he still probably does, where it's it's mostly half of its parodies and half of its originals, you know. Yeah. And uh, like in 3D and Nature Trail to Hell and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's all Al <laughs> right. stuff, and that was that was very funny. The thing where he does at the end with the reverse, uh, you've probably heard about that, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah. The, the... Uh, 
the verse yeah, lyrics. Yeah, that was yeah. during that Judas Priest thing or whatever, you know. And the, the, yeah, the Satan, Satan eats cheese whiz. Line. <laughs> right. were, were you there that for that really recording? Great. The uh, Satan eats yes, cheese. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Exactly. I was pretty much there for most of the recording of the record. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it was wow. it was very funny, very entertaining. You know, I will say, <laughs> one of the best times I've had in the studio. <laughs> And not only did you get a Grammy for, for In 3D, I saw you on a recent thing, Artists on Lockdown, and in the background, I could see your gold record from In oh, 3D. Oh, you saw that? Yeah. The, oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's in the living room. As a matter of fact, well, that and Dare to be Stupid both got uh, gold, probably sold a lot more by now, you know? Right. But yeah, that uh, and the Quiet Riot records and all that, and the Kiss record and all that kind of stuff I like got. Yeah, the wall is wow. pretty impressive. That's awesome. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, that's cool. now I'm proud of those, you know, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, Al's been incredibly successful for this, you know, he created this genre. Well, I guess Dr. Demento sort of kind of spurred him on, but right. he certainly made a great career out of it, you know. Yeah. Now, you'd mentioned that you uh, got to hear the lyrics for the first time in the studio, but uh, I'm guessing you got to see the music ahead of time, right? Or did you see that for the first time as well? Well, it was mainly, you know, you just, you know, he'd say like, you know, well, we're going to do a, a version of, of Beat It, you know, we're going to do a version of, uh, well, like uh, King of Suede was King of Pain, you know, the police. And, right. you know, he'd tell us, you know, what songs he wants to do. And so I just basically learned the track, you know, from uh, from the original, you know. For a track like Midnight Star or uh, Dare to be Stupid or something like that, that's a, a Weird Al original song. I mean, right. what kind of guidance did you get on a song like that? Well, that would be, it would start with like sort of, you know, listening to like Whip It, let's say, by Devo or, or you know, something that was a classic Devo track. Mm -hmm. And then Al and I would just kind of, you know, work. He'd kind of show me the 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 part, or like a that. That's the line I guess he wanted. Uh, and we'd kind of work it up a little bit, but it was mainly just sort of he'd already have the the melody kind of uh, fleshed out. But it was mainly kind of like listening to the original artist that we parodied to get the sounds, you know. Right. So a lot of the stuff like Dare to Be Stupid was obviously modeled after uh, uh, Devo, you know. And right. uh, any of the stuff that, you know, that we did that was a direct parody um, that, uh, you know, like Eat It or whatever, that was obvious what we had to do. You know, I, I basically just copy those parts. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, it was sort of a, you know, a mix and match. I mean, Al's a very accomplished, you know, uh, musician. I mean, he's a great accordion player for sure, you know, and that uh, translates to keys, you know. So he can pretty much tell, you know, everybody what he's looking for, you know. Uh, but the, the lyrics was always, I'm not sure if he just did it on purpose or, or what, but that was the first time I'd hear most of the lyrics would be just <laughs> while we were tracking the song, you know, which wow. is hilarious, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it's a big surprise. <laughs> exactly. There was another track, too, that uh, it was um, produced by, what's his name, Peter Wolf, the guy who did this Starship, uh, We Built the City, all that those songs, you know. And it was called Here's Johnny. It was... Uh, Basically, a very complex uh, sequencer, synthesizer sequencer track. And somehow I managed to get uh, individual tracks from Peter wow. uh, of what went down on the keyboards of the original <laughs> of, uh, of that track. And I, got, I managed to dissect it. And I had sort of a rudimentary Roland sequ digital sequencer at the time that managed to work with the uh, Roland Jupiter 8. And kind of programmed the whole thing via that. And this is like in the really early days of doing anything with digital sequencing. 
And I felt quite an accomplishment (laughs) pulling that (laughs) off relatively in real time. Because I think Peter did it like, you know, multi-tracking it, you know, and it was, that was a heck of a job, imagine, doing the original. Uh, but that, yeah. uh, that was probably the most challenging on that record. Uh, living with a hernia was just, that was fun because I, I'm a, you know, I'm a really an avid funk enthusiast, yeah. uh, enthusiast, <laughs> yeah. you know, James Brown and all that. I mean, I love that stuff. That was fun to do. And what Al turned that into is hilarious. And and actually performing that live was was really a lot of fun too. We did the whole <laughs> oh, thing with the, the cape, you know, what James Brown always tried to leave the stage, and they come back and put the cape on him. And he pulled. It. I mean, you know, I would, you know, I have to say that Jay Jay Levy. I mean, he was brilliant. How he, I, I know he probably he and Al came up with all that uh, the performance end of Al's show, and how they managed to pull off, you know, like the whole thing with Eat It, where it, it looked it was like the same set from michael jackson yes. you know and and, the, and everything they did for video was like a it, it, that was a parody of the original video you know and uh very well done i mean i, I just you know, that really surprised me when i saw some of those videos <laughs> yeah so i'm glad that jay's uh still working with them i didn't uh, know if they were still together or what you know i know that uh uh I think I like how I met Jay too, because that was through Jake Hooker, who was the uh, who wrote uh, "I Love Rock and Roll." That uh, oh, sure, yeah. Al turned into "I Love Rocky Road." Right. But Jake right. knew Jay. It's, this is kind of a long. I'm trying to figure this whole thing. Like you were talking about earlier, everybody's connected to everybody in one way or another. <laughs> Jake Hooker was Rick Derringer's manager. Oh, okay. And I'd known uh, Jake. And uh, through another thing, uh, he was good friends and, I guess, partners with Rick Stevens, who owned the, the record plant. And Rick and I go way back because I produced one of his bands that uh, he uh, was developing, Shotgun Messiah, back in the 90s. I mean, it, it's all sort of kind of falls into place. And I did some work with Deep Purple over at the record plant through Rick. And Jake, um, I, I, he, uh, he and Jay were really good buddies. And because I guess because of Derringer, I think that's probably because of the connection with Derringer producing Al. So it was all this kind of everybody was sort of interconnected so to some degree, you know. And I kind of even knew Jay before I even started working with him, you know. Hmm. But um, but Al at the time, I didn't, you know, when I got that call from Derringer to come down and try uh, putting the parts down to eat it. I didn't know Al uh, other than just hearing him every once in a while on Dr. Nemento's show on the radio, you know, because I was a fan of Dr. Nemento, you know, which was it was fun meeting him eventually. Yeah. And touring with him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's uh, the first time I'd actually met Al was at the studio when uh, I went down to do Eat It. And uh, that's that got the whole ball rolling. And I just really enjoyed the whole process that stuck with it for several years i was working with al uh i think till like the end of 86 or 87 something like that so it went on for about three four years you know yeah i mean you stuck with al through his dare to be stupid album through his polka exactly. party album you went out on tour with him on two yep. separate tours i mean yeah you That's were right you and al were, were definitely uh teaming up there in the early <laughs> to mid 80s <laughs> Yeah, well, and we did like some television show. We did like uh, Solid Gold. We did uh, like a certain oh, on Solid nice. Gold, which is that's pretty classic. And all you know, and, and right? Just, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just uh, it was it was fun. I had a really good time. It was uh, you know, it, you know, Al was like a, a a huge 
um, star overnight because of Eat It, because it really, that went through the roof, you know. And yeah. uh, from that point on, he's just been, you know, it's it's been Weird Al has been like a, a celebrity, a big celebrity ever since. So, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely, <laughs> he's kind of milking it, and he's I'm glad to see he's still doing it, you know. <laughs> now he's turned into a movie star. Of course. I wanted to talk uh, yeah. again a, a little bit about uh, Dare to be Stupid. I mean, when I think of iconic keyboard or, or synthesizer parts, Dare to be Stupid is very iconic to me. Do you remember anything else about that process? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I was that was another challenging sequencer, you know, thing to do, you know, and to do that live. That was another thing. Like, how do we do this? So we didn't want to use tapes. <laughs> right. Uh, so. <laughs> At that point, um, I managed to, I was uh, using an emulator at that point that had a, a built-in sequencer. Things were starting to get pretty advanced in the keyboard world. <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, programming the, the parts uh, to eight tracks of the, the emulator sampler. And um, some of it I basically lifted, I mean, I a lot of it was played on the Jupiter 8 originally, but then you, to do all that and play that lick, I played it in real time, but there's a lot of backing parts to it, you know? So there was several different little parts that actually uh, I programmed into the sequencer and then played the Jupiter 8 on top of that for live. So the the eventual, the end of ending sound sounded exactly like the record. And it was coming off the, the stage as opposed to off a tape machine, you know? So that was actually kind of cool. It was it was a challenge, but it was a lot of fun because that was that's the kind of thing I get into. I'm a kind of a nerd as far as the uh, you know the technical aspect of all this stuff goes, you know. But it was a, it was a very like you say, it's a very memorable melody. I mean, it's really and it's very typical of something Devo would do, you know. Um, but it's uh, it's one of those things you can't get out of your head after oh, absolutely. a couple of times. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and doing it live was fun, too, because we'd do the whole Devo bit, you know, we'd dress right. up in the, the, um, the, the trash bag outfits, you know, and come out, you know, right. looking like Devo. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was fun. And then Al would always intersperse those uh, iconic, you know, interviews in between right. the, you know, the costume changes, you know. Another really iconic Al original with, with a lot of great synthesizer is Midnight Star. Do you have any recollection of putting that one together? This one doesn't kind of bring too much to memory, though, as far as, like, the parts. Some nice guitar playing on that one, though. And uh, I think, you know, some of the stuff, you know, I know that, like, uh, Derringer actually played a couple of guitar parts. I know Jim play, play, played most of it, you know. But Derringer, like, on Eat It, he, would, he played the solo on that. But, uh, yeah, no, that one doesn't kind of, I, that one's hard to kind of recollect, quite frankly. Yeah. So I, I can't say exactly what uh, what I ended up doing. On that. I mean, it does sound, I, I remember the parts a little bit, you know. But again, most of the stuff, this is mostly the Jupiter 8 analog uh, polyphonic synthesizer for most of the stuff I did on uh, on Al stuff, other than maybe the piano or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, another iconic uh, Weird Al original song, One More Minute. Oh, yes. Do you remember recording that one? Yes, I do remember yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is but the stuff you know. We would learn these these tracks, and again, he would never really kind of do lyrics, from my recollection, until we basically were performing it. You know, so it was like that's that's when it all kind of came together. You know, you can kind of hear the, what we were actually doing at that point. You know, yeah. So uh, 
Yeah, it was, and then all the stuff, you know, he had that kind of theme going through everything about food. You know, everything was somewhat kind of right. sort of perversely related to food, you know. <laughs> Uh, other than like you know certain I mean, obviously like living with a hernia or whatever you know that's that's what do you have, you know what else can you say it's just that's just a classic <laughs> parody you know? yeah right and especially you know how, the way he performed it you know with you know like James Brown with a hernia you know that, that was just hilarious <laughs> addicted to spuds another great food based parody yeah exactly yeah <laughs> no it's uh, it's just brilliant you know. Now, on Al's website, it says that you joined Al for two shows, including a practice show at the Starlight Amphitheater in Burbank in June 1984, but then you didn't actually join him for that tour, the tour of the universe? I, I think, well, I'm not, I, I, 1984, that's when that was, Starlight yeah. Amphitheater? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I did join him for that, because uh, that. I'm pretty certain I was on like the first couple of tours right uh, after uh, in 3D came out, hmm. and um, it didn't say that. Well, I do remember the Starlight Amphitheater gig. That was great because that was uh, that was the one of the I guess the first times we did like the big uh, you know the costume changes, the, the choreographed dancers, the <laughs> the interviews with Madonna and Prince sure. and all that kind of stuff. And I think Al actually I think he entered the. The amphitheater from a helicopter, from what I understand. Whoa! Oh wow! Yeah, it, was a, it was a big, it was a big deal, you know. And wow. uh, and Al, actually, I'm almost certain I did more gigs. I may not have been the entire tour, but I did more gigs um, right after that because I remember uh, we had Gene Black as a, as another guitar player. Um, he played in that on that gig. Gene was a good friend of, is a good friend of mine. I still know him, and he's still around. He was a uh, Joe Cocker's guitar player until Joe passed away. Oh. And uh, so Gene was basically in that lineup. Um, and we did a couple of gigs. We did the Starlight Amphitheater, I remember. We did like, uh, I don't know if he was at, the, I don't know if that was when we did the Greek Theater, if that was that tour or not. I think it might have been. And the uh, we did like some, uh, oh, I don't know, some, some major festivals, one down at Dana Point, And uh, we did, you know, a few gigs. But again, I'm not entirely sure if that was the entire tour, you know. There were several things going on in uh, in my professional life at yeah. that point that <laughs> I might have gotten pulled away from, yeah. you know. <laughs> so uh, it's hard to say, you know. We do know officially that you joined the Stupid Tour from the beginning. That was in 1985. Well, that, yes, I did that one. Right. So, the yeah, the other one, I, yeah, the Starlight Amphitheater, I do remember doing and, and a few gigs around that era, but it may not have been the entire tour. So, it's, hmm. uh, but the uh, Stupid, Dare to be Stupid Tour, absolutely, I did that. And that was a lot of fun. And then that was like when we had the monkeys, we were touring with the monkeys at the time, which was, which was kind <laughs> of a circus. And that yeah. was... Uh, other than what's his face, Mike Nesmith, who was the only guy that wasn't on the tour, but everybody had their own. Right. Each family member had their own bus. You know, it was that kind of ridiculous. Wow. You know? <laughs> wow. It was, uh, yeah. They, there was no ex expense, like uh, spare no expense on that tour. You know, and I, that, and I think we had uh, we had Van Halen's tour bus too, which was really nice. So we were riding in style as well. You know, but uh, yeah, that. That was a cool tour. What can you tell us about, you know, Stupid Tour versus the tour with the Monkees? Uh, what were some of the, the differences that stood out to you? Uh, well, 
<laughs> this is probably something I might imagine Al would probably remember and might not think too kindly of. Uh, I think I'm trying to remember which one. I think it was a stupid tour that uh, I had my girlfriend out on the road with me at the time, Patty and I, basically, where she came out and we basically, <laughs> we kind of camped out in the tour bus. So it was kind of, but, you know, I don't think anybody kind of was okay. weird about it or whatever. But uh, but I don't know for sure. Because, you, know? <laughs> uh, you know, it was kind of like Spinal Tap in a way, I guess, you know. But, you know, we got a chance to go do a lot of uh, sightseeing. You know, Patty and I got, a, you know, it was great. We got to tour and then we'd go sightseeing every day. And, and unfortunately, it was always late getting to the gig. And I always got chewed out by Jay and everybody. <laughs> Because <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> we're, you know, taking advantage of you know sightseeing on the, right. on the tours. Dying, oh, no. you know? So it, I, you know, sure. but I, I never got much grief from Al about that. But I, you know, I don't know if that really kind of took its toll <laughs> with the rest of the guys. Maybe so, you know. But that was uh, I do remember. I have fond memories of that myself, though. That was great. That was the 1985 tour, the stupid tour, like the first tour experience that you've had, or have you toured with other bands prior to that? Uh, well, probably the longest tours. I mean, I've, I've toured with other, I mean, we've done like, uh, you know, in other bands I've been in, we did like, uh, we opened up with, for Alice Cooper up in uh, Canada and did a few shows oh, here wow. and there, but, but mainly I, I never really did a lot of touring, had the opportunity to do when I did the Quiet Riot stuff, they wanted me to go out on tour and, but the problem is in those days, you know, keyboards were really looked down upon, you know, uh, in, in rock bands, you know, so I was going to have to be like behind the curtain, you know, off to the side of the stage. And I said, nope, I'm not going to do that. Wow. So uh, oh, so yeah. I turned down a lot of tours. I did a lot more session work than touring, you know, that mm -hmm. was my that was my gig. And I kind of, you know, made better money doing that. And it was just a lot more fun, really. Touring can kind of get mm -hmm. to you after a while. <laughs> okay. Sure, that's, Absolutely. So and eventually that's uh, so I didn't do a lot of extensive touring and, uh, you know, eventually just, you know, uh, got signed to Warner Brothers. That's when I kind of uh, split off from Al because I got a record deal with Warner's and which actually bought me my studio in Hollywood, which I had for 10 years on Hollywood Boulevard. And that's where wow, I did nice. bands like Deep Purple and Kiss and all these bands, you know, so that, uh, that took me into a, a whole different, you know, realm of, of stuff, you know. But I do occasionally still, I do, you know, keyboards, mainly when I actually do productions like that's, I've been working for uh, Richie Blackmore for the past, um, you know, 27 years, basically. Wow. And done just about every project he's done. And uh, and I pretty much play all the keyboards. Now I'm actually programming drums and, you know, I'm basically the backup, you know, uh, and producing and engineering and mixing and so forth, you know, so it's it's pretty much the whole ball of wax. So I still get a chance to perform, you know. But it's mostly in the studio, you know, not live. Now, one iconic venue that the Monkees tour hit was Red Rocks in Denver, oh, yeah. Colorado. Do you remember performing at Red Rocks? I absolutely do. And I will say that that was, uh, I had the worst hangover in my life <laughs> the, the day of the gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Al and I got invited to, uh, there was a, uh, uh, the Playmate of the Month uh, contest at some cantina in denver <laughs> or colorado right so al and i were we were judges basically and uh oh, so we wow. got the judge to play in the month and we were just they just kept serving us pictures of margarita all day all night long you know? and it got pretty crazy and i just remember getting to the to red rocks 
completely hung over out of my mind. And you know, you know, Red Rocks is the altitude is ridiculously high. I mean, yeah. It's like, Oh the yeah. The air is very thin. Sure. <laughs> and I, and I was just I just felt so sick and nauseated. Of course they had fortunately they have oxygen tanks in the dressing rooms. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they're they're because they know people that perform there are not used to the altitude. So uh thank God for that. So I'd have to go off and get like a blast of oxygen every once in a while just to keep the keep going. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I mean it was it was a great experience playing there, but it was it, i wish I had felt a little better when right. I was playing the game. You know? <laughs> but uh yeah, no, that was uh, that definitely is very memorable experience. <laughs> I hope Al won't get pissed off at me for spilling the beans. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that story. I mean, that's a, that sounds like a dream gig, and then you get to go play Red Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, and then, you know, you have a tendency to sort of overdo things when you're out in the road anyway, so that's, uh, you know, those are the days of my youth when I didn't know any better. But uh, yeah, that was it. Was very memorable, you know. Yeah, obviously, Red Rocks is a very memorable experience. Do you have any other uh, memorable venues that that you uh, remember or particularly liked performing at? Well, the Greek Theater was cool. I loved playing. I had my my entire family come out and see us at the Greek Theater, which was kind of cool because uh, they didn't get a chance to see us elsewhere. Yeah. But uh, but that's a nice that's a nice venue. I really enjoyed that as well. And then, you know, just uh, there's quite a few places. The Beacon Theater was cool, you know, in New mm. York. That's a classic. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that was great. That was kind of <laughs> that was kind of an interesting gig as they had me come out. There was like an opening act, some old vaudevillian guy that uh, that needed a piano accompaniment, you know. And, <laughs> and Jay comes on and he goes, man, we need you to play piano on this. And they gave me a chart. And I'm going, oh, God, I got to learn this thing, you know, and go out and play <laughs> And it was horribly uh, embarrassing as I was making clams all over the place. It was just me and this guy, you know, in the spotlight. And uh, other than that, the gig was fine. I mean, yeah. you know, the owl was great, you know. Right. So, yeah, that, the, the perils of touring, you know, as a session guy. I do remember, too, it was like, this is when he, you know, he did like the, uh, the, the interviews with Prince and Madonna and all that in between songs and all that sort of thing. And, so they had to set up a projector at the at the Beacon Theater, and um, they were trying. They were having issues with trying to get it rolling. And I had, you know, I, I have no projectors or whatever. My dad used to be in the, you know, uh, used to be a, a salesman, a camera shop salesman, or whatever. And uh, so the fact is, I went up and took a look at the the projector to try to see if I can, you know, get the the thing threaded right. And all of a sudden, this 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 guy comes uh, rushing down, screaming at me. It turns out, I didn't realize that in New York at that point, you know, the unions were just so strict about anybody doing <laughs> oh, anything, yeah. you know, that you're not allowed yeah. to do, you know. And they just have, they were having a connection. I mean, they really freaked out that I was even touching the projector. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I just, I'm just trying to help, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they basically, it was the union guy who stopped it, and they just had to wait till the projectionist got there to fix the damn thing, you know, so. Oh, jeez. In those days, I've, I've, thought, wow. I've been a union session player, but, you know, not to that degree, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. I wouldn't freak out if somebody came over and played the keyboard for whatever reason. 
<laughs> but uh, anyway, this, that was another memory. I'm curious with your tour with the monkeys. You know, you mentioned all the different tour buses and stuff. Did you guys have any you know actual interaction with the monkeys, or was it pretty separate? Oh yeah, you know, I I would uh, we'd get uh, you know we'd see them all the time, like uh, Peter and and Mickey and um, uh, Davey. Actually, were very very nice people actually oh yeah and, and, and mickey had his entire family had his daughter amy was on the, the tour and she was she was kind of a, a aspiring actress quite attractive and everybody was trying to hit on her at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean they were very pleasant people i mean davy was great and, and peter was just the regular guys you know yeah. mickey had a little bit more of an attitude but you know but nice guy you know right. very nice guy right yeah um but uh, they were good. They they had a really good band, you know. They actually had some really good players, uh, you know. You know that were better than they were, you know. But they would, uh, you know, they try they play their own instruments. But uh, but they, uh, you know, it was a good show. You know, if you're into the monkeys, for sure. And I know Bermuda was totally in heaven because he he loves the monkeys, you know. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's just too bad that uh, Nesmith wasn't there, you know, because that would have been that would have been great, you know, yeah. in the reunion, but. But the sure, three of them yeah. were, were good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, I mean, you know, playmate judging aside, what was a typical day out on the road with uh, Weird Al and his band like? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there really was a typical day. You know, I mean, it's like, you, you know, we'd be just, you know, going into a hotel room and then you'd probably sleep for most of the time of the day. I mean, Patty and I would get out and do a lot of sightseeing and quite frankly, it was exhausting <laughs> after a while, yeah. you know, traveling in the bus or whatever, but it was great. You know, I had great memories of that. But then, you know, you'd be in like really nice, uh, you know, um, metropolitan areas or whatever. And then you'd be like in the middle of, uh, I remember we were traveling through, uh, I don't know where the hell this was, was it Kentucky or something like that. And we had to stop for gas. And was, this was like a scene from Deliverance. I swear to God, it was, it was scary. It was like the local hillbillies, you know, coming out, you know, and the kids sitting on the porch playing banjo and you know, at the gas station. And they're all looking at us like we're all these long-haired freaks, you know. And it was kind of, it was kind of unnerving. I thought that was, you know, somebody was going to come out with a shotgun or something, you know. But uh, that was, you know, odd, you know. I mean, but that's, you know, you're just traveling through areas that you just normally wouldn't, you know. Yeah. And, uh but yeah, but you know, a lot of uh, it was it was a great way to see the country. Seriously, I mean, it was because I you know I hadn't done a lot of traveling in the United States um, before, um, other than back to New York and you know just in Hawaii or whatever. But not to the you know the Midwest or whatever. I hadn't seen a lot of that, so that was kind of fun, you know. And you know, I've done a lot of traveling in Europe and so forth. But I, I guess Al must be. Does he travel to Europe? I don't even know if. Does he have? He must have a fan base there, I would imagine, right? Oh yeah, he's done uh, several uh, legs of of a uh, couple tours over in Europe. He's gone to Australia. No, that would have been fun to do a, some European or, or or Asian tours with Al. I think that would have been a gas, but I never got oh, the yeah. opportunity. Uh, yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the tours I I was on were mainly domestic, you know, and just all uh, you know um, the major cities of the U.S., you know, and. And everywhere we would go, you know, no matter like small little uh, diners or whatever, Al would always have these these amazing fans would show up, you know, asking for autographs. He was popular back then, you know, and it was amazing to me. You know, people they knew him no matter what, you know. He's 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 recognizable, of course, obviously. Right, right. But uh, but at the even at that point, yeah, I didn't know he was as big as he was, you know. 
Yeah. And he had a lot of adoring fans everywhere we went. <laughs> when you were out on the Dare to be Stupid tour, mm-hmm. or even out with the Monkees, what size venues were you guys playing at, as far as capacity and that kind of stuff? Oh, you know, with the Monkees, we were playing uh, mostly kind of arena-sized places or, you know, large, you know, larger venues. Uh, the The earlier gigs, I mean, there was, like, some gigs that I remember playing at, like, we were at some, I forget where this was, but it was some dive in the middle of, oh, like Midwest somewhere. Uh, could have been in Texas for that matter from what I'm trying to remember. But I remember it was like a small venue, um, probably didn't hold more than like 200 people, I suppose. And the stage was completely falling apart. Oh, no. And it was like uh, the, were my keyboards, and keyboards are pretty heavy, you know. There was like uh, you could feel the the floor kind of bouncing up and down underneath <laughs> me, and and I think I think Al actually fell through the stage that evening. As a matter of fact, oh no! I think it was something it, it broke uh, broke a hole, and I think he, his leg went through the stage. If I'm not, it's, somebody did. I don't know if it was Al, wow. but somebody actually went through the stage. It was this rickety old stage, you know. It, it, oh, you know, man. we could have probably sued these guys, <laughs> but it was that was uh, one of the few that was really kind of. A pathetic venue you know but for the most part you know there'd be either like state fairs or you know relatively large venues right. you know it'd be actually okay, yeah. you know decent crowds <laughs> but those are that's the you know you're paying your dues when you're doing gigs like that you know? right yeah <laughs> but i wish i could remember the place that was in but i think it might have been like northern texas or something like that can't recall exactly you are listed on the Complete Al as composer. Do you recall working on that project? I do. Uh, we were doing a gig at some, I think it was a convention um, at in Century City in L.A. here. And, uh, you know, we, it was, it must have been a convention because it was kind of an unusual, uh, um, it was a daytime show, you know. And we just we made an appearance. I think I don't even think it was a full show. We just did several songs or whatever. And then um, Jay comes over and says, "Oh yeah, you got to go over to this studio over in Hollywood. Uh, they want you to do this uh, some some keyboards for a, a soundtrack thing." And uh, <laughs> I didn't really know too much about it, but uh, as it turns out, it was uh, it was the complete Al and yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the guy who was there was it Bob. Is it Bob Weiss? Yeah, Bob Weiss. Yeah, I think Bob it's the, Weiss. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the producer guy. You know, he did like I think he didn't he work on Airplane and Naked Gun and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. he was there and he he basically said, yeah, we just need you to do like uh, sort of the underscore for this scene in this you know documentary we're doing for Al, and that turns out that was the Michael Jackson scene for Eat It. You know, so it's it yeah. kind of like the, you know, the, the creepy horror movie thing, you know, <laughs> that, where the, he goes to meet Michael for the first time and, you know, right. and with all the Grammys behind him and all that. So that was kind of like done on the fly. But, it, you know, Bob basically kind of told me what he was looking for, sort of said, yeah, we just need this kind of eerie kind of thing. And and I basically just did it, you know, on the fly while I was there, you know. And uh, wow. and that turned out to, that was the underscore for that particular scene. I might have done some other stuff. I can't recall if there was any other parts of the the complete owl that I did, but uh, that for sure was the main thing I did. <laughs> and the guy that got to play Michael Jackson was great. <laughs> it was spitting image of Michael Jackson <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But that's probably you know that's you know that's probably courtesy of Jay's Jay's like uh, 
I mean, he's he's great at, at coming up with you know duplicating stuff like even like I'm fat and like the one of my favorite videos for Al is the one they did of the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. The uh, yeah, what was the name of that track? <laughs> Yabba Dabba yes. Doo. Right, that's brilliant. Right. I mean, it's they, just, I mean it's just it's so accurate. You know how they pull all that off. <laughs> But that, that's after I'd, uh, you know, I'd left the band or whatever, but I got a kick out of watching them do that. <laughs> now, we all know Al's current keyboard player, Ruben Valtiera. Have you ever been in touch with Ruben at all? Or, or you know, is there a feud going on? Oh, yeah. No, we, we, <laughs> we spoke. Uh, I haven't spoke to him recently, but, uh, but we speak periodically. You know, he'd have some questions about this and that, you know, and... Uh, he was a very nice guy. I mean, he was sort of uh, just kind of asking me, you know, simple things about like, uh, what did you do for this? And I try to pick my brain a little bit to try to remember exactly. That was when he came up with the, he said, Al is very adamant that you you uh, you find this chainsaw sound that you used for uh, uh, like a surgeon. I said, really? I said, what's so special about that? And it's like, uh, it was like a sample. I don't really even know where the heck I got it from, you know, but uh, I might have even recorded a real chainsaw for that matter. Wow. But it was done on, on the uh, emulator. And uh, we basically had to go through all these these audio files to try to locate this stuff, you know, but uh, Al was apparently very adamant to uh, to try to replicate that specific sound. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> which is okay, and uh, and Ruben says uh, he said you Al thinks that you uh, you're the only guy that could do this stuff you know or some of the sounds that you know I came up with in those days you know and, I mean I, I that's very flattering but I don't think that's absolutely true but <laughs> that's great that he would say that you know but uh, but Ruben's a great guy I mean uh, yeah. he seems a uh, very um, you know I mean, he's obviously um, competent and as a keyboard player you know and he's i'm just surprised he's managed to hang in there as long as he has even though i don't necessarily blame him because it is a fun gig you know oh yeah and like i know the rest of the guys are you know just that he keeps the rest of the band together i mean that's that's pretty amazing yeah that rarely happens (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's i i can't remember the the figure or, or the the exact names but it's like there's only a handful of bands that have actually stayed together as long as Al's band has. Well, I'm sure it's a small list, yeah, yeah. because uh, everybody yeah, goes definitely. through it. I mean, if, if, if nothing else, from sickness or illness or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, the, I think there was a one, uh, one point in Fleetwood Mac's career that they actually booked the band as Fleetwood Mac and none of the original players <laughs> was in the band. <laughs> and, the, and the fans just freaked out, you know, so what the hell are you trying to pull here, you know? So, I mean, as long as, I mean, at least you got to have one guy in the band. Right. You know? right. But uh, it's just, it's like after a while, you know, just selling the name, you know. Right, exactly. But uh, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of changes happen in, in most, you know, famous bands. And I guess it comes down to, uh, you know, it's the material, you know, if you're, you're real big fans of material and it sounds faithful to the original uh then you're okay with it, you know. I actually uh, I was working with uh, John Payne from uh, Asia, and he had this thing in Vegas at the uh, what used to be the the Hilton in Vegas, you know, the Elvis mm-hmm. stage, and it, I forget what they, uh, the hotel was taken over by Goldman Sachs. I don't even know what they called it at that point, but anyway, uh, he had this show called um, the Rock Vault, and it was brilliant. They basically. Uh, um, did performances of pop songs like Led Zeppelin and 
Foreigner and all these different famous songs, but with a bunch of different iconic type of, you know, performers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, you know, what's his face from, um, from Heart, uh, the guitar player and uh, very, you know, all these, all the players on the stage were like from various famous bands and whatever. And uh, we went to, to check it out one night and they had a quite, a quite a large crowd every night in the, you know, the Elvis Theater. And um, I have to say, this is it was, it was the ultimate tribute band when you really come right down to it. But they did like Zeppelin. They did Stairway to Heaven. That I don't think Zeppelin ever sounded that good in their life, you know. So mm-hmm. when you hear the song sound exactly like the record, you kind of tend to not really pay much attention to who the hell's up there on stage, <laughs> <laughs> because I saw Zeppelin back in the day, and believe me, they were uh, nothing like the record, you know. <laughs> Uh, it was kind of a disappointment, you know. So I suppose that people, you know, if if you really, you know, if the tunes really hold up, then it really kind of doesn't matter, I suppose, you know. You can get away with, you know, changing your personnel around a lot. There's something special about seeing, you know, the guys who actually wrote and performed the music on the albums, you know. It really, well, I absolutely, think it but to, unfortunately, experience. Yeah. unfortunately, a lot of them aren't, aren't even around anymore, you know. Right. Right. But uh, for Blackmore, for instance, I mean, he put Rainbow back together again, uh, which was, you know, pretty big in the 70s. And uh, he ended up because uh, I did uh, a, a Rainbow record back in 95, which was sort of before he that was the last incarnation of it. And it was all new uh, people. He was the only guy from the original band. But it's Blackmore's Rainbow, so he can get away with that. You know? Right. Right. And uh, the new band is the same thing. You know, it's it's basically all unknown guys. Uh, singer sounds just like Ronnie Dio and uh, cross between Ronnie Dio and uh, Ian Gillen, and uh, you know, and people, and they, you know, he does really well. I mean, they do like they did like a like this big festival in Sweden with in front of seventy thousand people, you know, <laughs> and it's like uh, you know he, he still is well, he's revered over in Europe for the most part. I don't think anybody really. You know, doesn't have quite as big of a fan base here in the states, but that he's always been sort of big in Europe, mm-hmm. but and Japan and whatever. But you know, I think they people just come out to see him. At least he's he's still the original member, you know. But right, nobody else is, you know. But you know, to have like Fleetwood Mac not even have Mick Fleetwood in it, you know, I mean, what the heck is that? <laughs> <laughs> and, or Stevie Nicks or anybody, you know. It's like you know, but yeah. like, they they rectified that pretty quickly, you know. <laughs> But Al, I have to say, man, he's got a loyal he's got a loyal band. Uh, I, that's great that he still has the same players. Now, outside of working with Al in the studio and being on tour with him, did you hang out with Weird Al at all? Like, go to the local malt shop or go, you know, get some ice cream? Well, <laughs> you know, not no, not exactly. I mean, we were never, never you know like close buds or whatever. But you know, we we did you know we'd go out to uh, like like you know I told you about the the playmate event thing, you know, right? Um, right. or, you know, I, we just, uh, you know, we would basically kind of be in the same, you know, hotel or whatever. We'd kind of meet up or whatever. Mostly I'd be, it's the same thing with the rest of the guys in the band too, for that matter. You know, like when you did the UHF, um, premiere party, mm-hmm. you know, it was a little bit mm-hmm. hard to kind of socialize with them that much, but that was over at the China club in Hollywood. And, uh, I was kind of amazed. I mean, he was sort of in his, uh, uh, 
his actor mode, I guess, at that point, and hanging out with all the Hollywood elites. And I was just sitting at, at the table with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> uh, I think Al sat there and Derringer. It was just a bunch of like, you know, high profile celebrity types, you know, that went to this thing. And it was actually pretty cool. Wow. Least, you know, but that wow. wasn't like kind of a, you know, just a hangout at the mall shop by any yeah. means. <laughs> that was a pretty cool event, you know. But it was nice of him to invite me to that, you know, because I had nothing to do with the UHF. Yeah. But uh, great movie, though. Yeah, wow. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that you've worked with Carmine a piece a, a lot over your career, and there's actually kind of a, a funny story about Carmine and the recording of "Eat It." Oh yes, yeah, because because uh, I'm I'm working with uh, Carmine on a couple of um, couple of things right now. As a matter of fact, he's doing some uh, like a box set of the uh, Guitar Zoo stuff that we did back in the '90s, and and Vanilla Fudge, and you know a bunch of stuff he's done over the years. Cactus, and I've worked with Carmine on a lot of that stuff. And uh, I had mentioned to Carmine just, you know, a few days or like about a week ago that I was going to be doing this uh, this interview with you guys for Weird Al. And he goes, oh, really? Yeah. And he says, uh, yeah, tell if you, if you talk to John Bermuda Schwartz, tell him that, yeah, Carmine says hi. And he goes, uh, yeah, I lent John my snare drum for the Eat It track. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I thought, what a small world that is. You know? Yeah. So and he would remember that even, you know, and I didn't know uh, uh, Bermuda even knew Carmine, but I guess he does, you know. So that uh, <laughs> it was kind of interesting. And, but Carmine's one of these guys that's uh, he knows like everybody, you know. I mean, he was in Ozzy's band. He was in uh, uh, Rod Stewart. He wrote, uh, do you think I'm sexy for Rod Stewart, you know. Wow. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, he's he's like an iconic um you know, musician, drummer, Vanilla Fudge, you know, when Zeppelin opened up for Vanilla Fudge, uh, apparently Bonham has credited Carmine as being a major influence to Zepp to Bonham's drumming. And I can hear that, too, because Carmine is one of the, f the first few guys, rock guys, that actually ever did any kind of interesting tom fills, you know. He was uh, in Vanilla Fudge. The guy was sort of a progressive drummer in the days where that wasn't even a thing, you know. So, uh, and he's still going strong. The guy's still putting out product, you know, which I have to hand it to him. It's good for him, you know. Everybody else is passing away, which is not <laughs> funny, but it's, uh, this, this last yeah. year has been traumatic. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I saw with one of Carmine's albums that you worked on, he'd brought in a lot of guest artists, including uh, Ted Nugent, <laughs> a couple others, Slash. That's right. <laughs> well, that's, that's the Guitar Zeus project. That's, uh, we're doing a box set of that. Uh, from that's several, like about three or four albums worth. And we just kind of resurrected a few tracks that never have been released that we've just, uh, uh, that I'm remixing and, and doing like, well, actually adding parts to it. We just had Derek Sherinian from Dream Theater actually play. He's and the Sons of Apollo. He just played like keyboards on this last track because Derek is well known for his like speed solos and that sort of thing. So it's the only track that Guitar Zeus has where there's a synth lead. But with Derek, uh, his playing sounds kind of like a guitar anyway, so it made sense. Cool. And um, so we're releasing that with some bonus tracks. Uh, but yeah, the players that he had on those uh, those records, you know, we had Neil Sean, Ted Nugent, Dweezil Zappa even. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's some major names. Brian May. Brian May played on a track. Uh, Richie Sambora. 
So, I mean, every song had a different, like, guest uh, guitarist on it, you know. And uh, some great playing and really good songs, too, actually. It still holds up. Sounds very contemporary still. Steven Seagal was on it, too? Steven Seagal, yes. <laughs> well, Steven's like, he's, a, he's, a, he's kind of an avid blues fan, you know, so that's, that was his contribution, you know. He even had, like, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, he's a guitar... Um, oh, he's a, he makes guitar... Um, is it Ernie Ball, I'm thinking? No, no, no. No, it's not Ernie Ball. It's, some, it's, some, it's another you know, guitar manufacturing guy that, that's a real... Was was always kind of a, a wannabe guitar player, and he had him on, you know, mm-hmm. for uh, for whatever reason. I forgot who it was. Wow. On, you know, <laughs> and Zach Wilde from Ozzy's band was on it. Actually, Zach, uh, interestingly enough, you know, like I say, things kind of flow in the same circles. Uh, you know, the, the Richie Blackmore hardly ever does anything for anybody as a guest appearance, but uh, the, the, we've done two... <laughs> William Shatner records. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> which I was really surprised he would even consider doing it. And one of them happened to be uh, Shatner did this kind of a sort of a tribute to Star Trek in a way, all these songs that were sort of based on space, whatever. So we did uh, Bowie's Space Oddity. Wow. And Shatner okay. does his or his <laughs> typical, you know, you know, he's, he's, he talks the song, you know, as opposed yeah, right. to singing it. You know? <laughs> right. So he's doing his, his shtick. And uh, and we're basically and I got Richie to play the solo on it. Uh, and um, but Zach also he he was actually a, I think he was part of the production team in L.A. here, and he played some of the rhythm stuff and whatever. And he played some solo stuff and some other Shatner songs. But the thing was funny because you know the iconic part of that song, and I know this is not talking about Al right now, but the iconic part of uh, Space Oddity was that Mellotron string thing that Rick Wakeman played in the original. And uh, the string pad on the, the new version was kind of like regular synth sound. And I thought, well, I, I said, you want me to maybe should I just play this, the Mellotron? They go, no, 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 don't do that. That's uh, Alan Parsons playing keyboards. <laughs> and I thought, really? OK, won't, I won't overplay his stuff, you know. <laughs> but uh, just the mere fact that Blackmore would actually agree to do a William Shatner record just blew my mind. That was kind of fun in a way. That was kind of yeah. a comedy thing. We just did one that was uh, <laughs> that's uh, Shatner's new uh, kind of tribute to the blues. We did uh, the Thrill Is Gone by BB King, and it's wow. the same kind of you oh know, cool his shtick, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and Blackmore plays guitar on it, and so that's kind of fun, you know. So I'm still not out of the comedy realm, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> still still doing some comedy albums. I imagine Demento, Doctor Demento, could make a field day out of some of the Shatner stuff. <laughs> You mentioned you're a fan of Dr. Demento. Do you ever submit any music to Dr. Demento? Well, no. I mean, I think uh, Al sort of beat me to the punch on that one. <laughs> right. As far as like the Shatner <laughs> stuff, you know, you know, I haven't really done that much comedy stuff. But uh, okay. But it was fun hanging out with Barry, though, because you know, we got to tour together. And uh, he, was a, he was an avid uh, collector of exotic beer. Oh, yeah, which really? I thought, oh. Which I found fascinating. Wow. Oh, yeah. That was his thing. You know, everywhere we'd go, he'd, you know... Uh, Bermuda would collect, uh, you know, uh, albums and vinyl and all that kind of stuff or paraphernalia, music paraphernalia. And Barry would collect exotic beers, you know, and uh, oh. which is kind of kind of that was sort of closer to my heart, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was an interesting guy, you know, he's entertaining, very kind of mild mannered, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but he, I guess, really kind of started Al off when you really come right down to it. 
Because I think it was his radio yeah. show where he gave him the most, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of exploited him. Definitely. Yeah. Give him the inspiration. Yeah. He's still, is he still broadcasting? I guess he is, isn't he? I mean, yeah, I imagine he has. He is still doing <laughs> weekly shows. He's, you know, putting out some great stuff. Wow. i got to look him up. Yeah, he just celebrated 50 years of doing his show. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty, that's a hell of a milestone. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's very cool, yeah. <laughs> And to and to you know remain relevant. That's you know at this day and age. I mean he's in the he's in the right business though. I mean, during the pandemic, I mean what better way to to be working? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Broadcasting on the, the radio, you know. Absolutely. And funny music. You know, have to worry about commuting or anything or being in person with an interview. And people always looking for some comedy music release, you know, just to lighten up their day a little bit. No kidding. Well, you know, it's it's really a it's a shame that. Uh, you know, how the pandemic has really sort of crippled the music industry. I mean, the music industry has had its ups and downs anyway, but at this point in time, it's that's exactly what people need, entertainment, you know, but, uh, you know, it's not going to happen until they get all the vaccines out there. And yeah. Yeah. it's a lot of friends of mine, you know, they've been looking. That's why, we, you know, the, the, uh, the Carmine uh, artist on lockdown thing, that's how that started, you know. And uh, so you got to figure out other ways to sort of, you know, get out there. But for touring musicians, it must be just, it must be hell, you know? Yeah, it's a shame. But hopefully when this is all over, it's going to just open up gangbusters, you know? Yeah. Because people be starved <laughs> for entertainment, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lines are going to be around the block just to get in. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> just for you know, anything. Because people are like, geez, it's about time. We got we were able to go out and see a, a live concert for a change, you know? It doesn't matter who or what it is, as long as I get out and see it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, whatever. Just... <laughs> Pat, can you think of any Weird Al stories that you haven't told yet that you'd want to talk about? I do remember when uh, I did go over to Al's humble little apartment on uh, Highland Avenue, I think it was. Was that the Galmore building? It might be. I can't recall the name of the place, but you know where the uh, the Dolby Theater is and uh, you know, where the Chinese, where that whole uh, conglomeration is? Down yeah. There? yeah. It was sort of... It was uh, like on the other side of Highland, a little bit further north, and uh, it was uh, just like kind of an old, old-fashioned, like you know, uh, apartment hotel uh, facility or whatever. And I mean, it was like a one-bedroom apartment, not like the best furnishings or whatever. And he had just bought his Jupiter Eight because he, he, you know, because he wanted to do, to uh, be able to do the stuff that I was doing with mine, right? Mm-hmm. So I went over to his place to to kind of program it with the sounds I had in mind, you know, and I just uh, now looking back on it at the time, I was thinking, well, you know, this is kind of a humble existence for a recording artist, whatever. <laughs> and I'm thinking now, well, but, you know, you know, and he wasn't really kind of, you know, ashamed of it or anything. It's just sort of where, where he was living, you know, and now it's like uh, light years beyond that. You know, now he's actually uh, quite successful. But talk about humble beginnings, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he had enough money to buy a Jupiter 8. Jupiter 8s weren't cheap back then. They were about <laughs> like $6,500. Oh, know? wow. So, uh, yeah, they were expensive synthesizers in those days. So, uh, and he, he made the right choice because that was, uh, that was the, the synth of choice in those days. So it's all the money he was saving by uh, paying you know, rent on that place. He was uh, investing into his future. Well, you know, he was he was probably on some sort of, yeah, he's probably the record label is probably pay, paying him like a little stipend or something, you know, uh, before he was, you know, uh, 
in the black, you know, so right. he was probably right. trying to save money. But uh, all it took is that to eat it to come out, and that was it. That was the big, uh, you know, the the launch forward, you know. Oh, yeah. Do you remember when you found out that Eat It was a hit, this song that you had, you know, worked on? I think when I kind of, well, first off, hearing it on the radio it was being played all the time, for one thing. But when I saw the video on MTV, that blew me away, you know, yeah. because it was like choreographed like the original, <laughs> you know. And I thought, that's brilliant. I thought, oh, now this has got to make some waves. And of course it did. And Al, I had no idea he was that talented as, you know, I mean, to parody dance moves and the whole bit, you know, he was, he had the whole thing down, you know. <laughs> uh, so I knew that, okay, this, this is going somewhere, you know. And, uh, and of course, Eat It was such a gigantic, or Beat It itself, Michael Jackson's Thriller was such a gigantic hit that it was a great song to, to parody, you know. And what was interesting is when Al was telling me about, like, uh, you know, how he gets permission to do all these songs, you know, he has to go to the artist, right? Yeah. Because he shares publishing with the original uh, songwriter. And he said, oh, yeah, Jackson was totally into it, you know. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And Sting and all the, everybody else, Madonna, I mean, they, they said, yeah, why, why not? You know, they're going to get more publishing, so why not, you know? Right. Except when he got to Prince. And then Prince basically put the kibosh on doing When Doves Cry, because apparently, I guess he said it was something that was too personal about his parents or something like that, and he just, he just didn't want to do it. And so that's when Al, you know, when he was doing the Al TV stuff, that's when he did the interview with Prince and just kind of <laughs> continually ragged on him, you know. <laughs> sort of like the vendetta against Prince, because Prince wouldn't allow him to do his song, you know. But uh, which was very funny. I yeah, those, those of course. Interviews were great, classic, you know. But realistically, when you think about it, I, I would I would think it would be an honor to have Weird Al do a song of mine. I mean, that would be brilliant. You know, why not? You know, absolutely. I mean, he's like uh, it's it's another another avenue for publishing money. You know, publishing revenue. <laughs> but uh, yeah, now he's uh, he's kind of and, and that what's that's amazing though that he managed to parlay this into you know I mean he does get you know. Uh, residuals off of all these songs uh, obviously it's not you know he doesn't get a residuals off of beat it of course right <laughs> if you could kind of finagle that that would be awesome you know? but it was pretty big though you know i guess you could make the case that you know some weird al fans who are hearing weird al songs first are then going to beat it in these other songs and listening to him because of al well that's the thing you know he's selling uh, the artist product well but you got to realize too that the original product is promoting his stuff too you know so if beat it wasn't such a huge hit uh eat it probably wouldn't have been either you know but you got a point there because the fact is that the, the fans of Al would probably go, if, even if they didn't know what beat it was, they'd probably look up Michael Jackson and they'd buy his product. Right. <laughs> so they both feed off right. of each other in a way, you know. So, yeah, I, you know, you could probably make a point, but I don't know if it's, it's, it's which came first, the chicken or the egg. Right. You know? So, I, yeah, I kind of don't think that would fly, you know, with most of the estates out there. <laughs> Pat, this was a blast going through memory lane and and uh, hearing about all these amazing stories. No kidding, man. I haven't thought about this in a long time, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah. well, I hope you get to Al before the you know thirty six years from now, or whatever you're talking about. <laughs> 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 <Doing him. laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, because 
Yeah, exactly. No, that would be cool. I'd listen in to that for sure, you know. Thank you so much to Pat. That was amazing getting to hear all the stories from early on in Weird Al's career, and especially those stories from On the Road with Weird Al. <laughs> I especially loved that story about Al falling through the stage. I hadn't heard that story before, and Dave, you hadn't heard that story before, so we reached out to Bermuda to clear some things up to see if he remembered what happened. Bermuda let us know that the event happened on July 7th, 1985 at the Raging Bull in Maryville, Indiana. And apparently the venue was not ready for a six-piece rock band. You know, of course, there's <laughs> Al, Jim, Steve, Bermuda, Pat, and then, if you remember, William Anderson was also on that tour. The stage itself was folding risers, and Al fell right through it. <laughs> Nothing too major. There's only a two-foot drop maximum. <laughs> oh, man. I would have loved to have been there and, and see that. We'll have to ask Bermuda <laughs> all about that next time we chat with him. Bermuda, thank you so much for all the extra insight. Always a scary moment when something unexpected like that happens, but I'm glad to see that Al made through it relatively unscathed. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Discover Darwin, promoting tourism in Darwin, Minnesota. Not only is historic Darwin, Minnesota uh, beautiful, it's also seedy. Darwin, Minnesota is the home to what surely is the number one location of producers' hybrids. Their commitment is simple, to provide the best genetics with the latest biotech traits, backed by outstanding service from a company whose sole business is seed. What sets producers' hybrid apart is their access to world-class genetics that are fine-tuned to meet the specific needs of those in the Corn Belt while maintaining a small company feel. So visit Darwin, Minnesota on your next expedition. Discover Darwin, more than just the twine ball. And after you visit Darwin, be sure to visit discoverdarwin.biz. Each week we can bring you this podcast absolutely free thanks to sponsors like Brito Brito, Angel Valenzuela, and his son David Cash, Discover Darwin, Jackson Scoggins, and our amazing Patreon supporters like Sparky, Allison, Spencer, Richard, JM, and so many more. Revenue from our incredible supporters on patreon.com slash 2000inch allows us to continue doing what we love, which is make fantastically fun, funny, and family-friendly Weird Al podcasts for you each and every week. We'd absolutely appreciate your consideration in joining our pretty stinking majestic Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. Looking for another way to support the podcast? Head over to shop.2000inch.com for official Dave Nathan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, tank tops, face masks, and pillows, and so much more. Find us online at weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com where you can find information about our guests and listen to past episodes like episode 20inch where we interviewed Ruben Valtiera, Weird Al's longtime keyboardist who took over the reins after Pat Regan. Please join our Facebook group by heading to group.2000inch.com for episode discussions and other exclusive content. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram via at 2000inch and at youtube.2000inch.com. Be sure to share our posts and tell your friends to gill and chill. We love it when you leave us voicemail on our 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347 Spatula. You might even hear your message on the air. 
You can catch our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or the podcast app of your choice. Whichever you choose, be sure to hit that subscribe button to ensure that you do not miss a single episode. New episodes drop every Wednesday. It's still the new year! You know what that means. At some point, we'll begin airing our series of bonus episodes where we sit down with John Bermuda Schwartz and go page by page, picture by picture, inch by inch through his brand new book, Black and White and Weird All Over. Now, time is running out for you to grab that book if you want to be able to follow along with those episodes. And plus, it's a great gift to give someone for Weasel Stomping Day. Thank you once again to this week's guest, Pat Regan, and a big thank you to Summer Woods for that amazing Bossa Nova theme. Thank you to the great John Bermuda Schwartz for all of his contributions to the podcast, and thank you, Mike Minnick, for the voicemail and nothing else. A big thank you to all of our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters, and sponsors, and everyone who made this podcast an episode possible. I'm really excited for the next episode. Can we tell them what it's going to be? Sure, I don't see why not. <laughs> All right. Next week, we will air episode 90 inch. That was Dave Ethan's 2000 inch Weird Al podcast, episode 89 inch. The check's in the mail. No, really. Would I lie to you? Well, not to end on a down subject, but Jesus, this year, my God.